Welcome to the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast. I'm Cheryl McColgan, founder of Heal, Nourish, Grow. The website, this show, and our newsletter all focus on making the science of advanced nutrition and greater overall health accessible to everyone. Buckle up for our latest episode to get ideas, tools, and practical knowledge you can use to improve your health and move towards your perfect version of ultimate wellness. The Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast shares interviews with nutrition experts, health researchers, and everyday people that have changed their lifestyle and nutrition to support greater health. You'll learn how to implement lasting change and create new habits that support greater wellness and a happier, healthier life. Please visit healnourishgrowpodcast.com for full show notes and links to our guests. As the founder of Dry Farm Wines, a writer, speaker, and a leader in the organic and natural wine movement, Todd White has widely educated communities on conscious consumption. Todd is a self-described biohacker who practices daily meditation, Wim Hof breathing, cold thermogenesis, a ketogenic diet, and a daily 22-hour intermittent fast. He is also a frequent speaker on topics including meditation and the Dry Farm Wines unique company culture. Built on a foundation of honesty and peace, Dry Farm Wines has seen remarkable growth, making at one of the fastest growing private companies in the U.S. without any debt or investors. Dry Farm Wines is endorsed by many leading U.S. performance influencers with pure natural wines that are lab tested to ensure that each bottle is sugar-free, less than 0.15 grams per glass, lower in sulfites, and lower in alcohol, under 12.5 alcohol by volume. The wines are friendly to low-carb, paleo, ketogenic, and low-sugar diets. Dry Farm Wines is proud to be the largest natural wine merchant in the world, bringing awareness to natural wine consumption and supporting farmers who honor the soil. Hi everyone, today I'm sitting here with Todd White and I am so excited to speak to him because I have heard him interviewed multiple times in the past and I have absolutely adored his product for years. You guys know, you've heard me talk about dry farm wines a hundred times. I've done the little experiment with drinking it and staying in ketosis, which is on my YouTube channel. So now I get to chat with the man that made this all happen. So welcome Todd. <laughs> Thanks. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to having a talk today about everything low carb, keto, fasting, and wine. Yeah, I'm super excited. We were chatting a little bit before we actually started recording, and I was excited to learn that you are as big a proponent of fasting as I am. But for now, why don't you maybe introduce yourself a little bit, tell people a little about, bit about your health background, how you came to sort of this lifestyle and wanting to really lower, you know, your chemical load in your body, which is part of the way that Dry Farm Wines came to be. So if you can just talk a little bit about your background and how you how you got to where you are now. Yeah, so it, my journey started like more than 20 years ago before biohacking was a term. I was a biohacker as you were. And any of them who was experimenting with dieting, so biohacking is a confusing term. Some people don't know what it means. I define it as the art and science of how we structure our behavior to have a positive impact or outcome on our neurological and biological outcome. Now, the most common biohack is probably dieting, right? But biohacks could be meditation or uh, fitness is a biohack. Any, any influence we have to a physiological state. Right, and, and when we're living a life of intention around this. And then biohacking can get crazier with brain treatments and so on and so forth. But at the most basic terms, it just be a diet. So I've been a biohacker for more than uh, 25. I've been experimenting with diet since I was in my 30s, and I'm now 60. And so for the last 
30 or so years I've been experimenting with dieting. And I started with the Atkins program, which was originally the OG keto diet, yeah. right? Or what I would call modified keto. It's not a therapeutic ketogenic diet. And so I started experimenting with that as a way really to maintain the weight control that I wanted. And I knew I was sensitive to carbohydrate as approximately 85% of people are. And so I, I knew that I was sensitive to it. And so for me, you know, it was, I have to admit, it was a bit about vanity, right? <laughs> um, and right <laughs> so, yeah, so I just wanted to, you know, look great and date beautiful people. And this was just sort of my, was my jam. You know, I love Robert Iger in his book last year. He's the chairman or was the CEO of Disney talked about his commitment to exercise at four in the morning. And he was saying, you know, people ask me why I get up at four in the morning to exercise and which I don't do that, but, but, um, but he said, you know, it's for two reasons. It's for sanity and vanity. You know, so I can't imagine a life with, from a sanity point of view, personally, and I know you can appreciate this guy, see so you work out regularly, but I can't, I don't work out uh, for weight control, control because that's relatively ineffective. I work out from, from mental stability, you know, because the, because working out really gives us peace of mind and helps us, you know, with our mental health. So, so for both sanity, but there's also the vanity element, of course. Yeah. And uh, particularly as you get older, you know. So I, you know, began experimenting. Dry Farm Wines came to be because I began experimenting. Um, I had done Atkins. And, you know, back in the day, this is before ketogenic diet was, ketogenic diet really didn't come on to the, onto the radar for biohackers until f about five or six years ago. It didn't go mainstream until about two and a half or three years ago, or two years ago even, when it went mainstream and really got attention of the public. But biohackers had, dedicated ones, had started experimenting five or six years ago. And, you know, as I said, I had experimented, even using the urine sticks, as Atkins recommended, to judge whether you're in ketosis. But the basis of his diet, while it was focused on being in a state of ketosis, it wasn't a ketotic diet per se. You know, it was more of a lifestyle diet, more of a belief around cardiovascular health and so on and so forth. It wasn't until really Dr. Dominic D'Agostino and, 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 um, and Dr. Tom Seafried out of the Boston College around cancer and uh, Dominic was working for the Department of Defense and that ketogenic research really started to surface six or seven years ago in a very meaningful way in Dr. Ken Ford at IHMC. And, and so, you know, there was, um, and so I started experimenting with a, a therapeutic ketogenic diet about five or six years ago. I was therapeutically ketogenic for about two years. The problem is it's not really sustainable. Well, and let's right? just maybe for people that I think probably most of the people listening to this have a familiarity with, you know, what is sort of a day-to-day -day just general health ketogenic diet as opposed to a therapeutic, but could you maybe make your distinction for that just so people um, sure. have that background? So, so a modified ketogenic diet, which is really the Atkins diet and the diet that I follow today, I rarely have long periods of what I'd call therapeutic ketosis. But therapeutic ketosis is a very high-fat diet uh, where 70 to 90% of your calories are coming from fat, right? 
very low carb and very moderate protein. Now, this is super easier to maintain if you're doing intermittent fasting as I do only eating once per day, right? But the problem is it's not a very interesting diet, right? And so over time, uh, it becomes quite boring. And, you know, we're creatures of entertainment and pleasure. At our heart, most of us are somewhat hedonistic, like we love the pleasure of food and the pleasure of living and the pleasure of being in great shape and the pleasure of, of health. I mean, health, and yeah, <laughs> I, I'm a professed mindful hedonist. Right? <laughs> and so I say a mindful hedonist because we have to keep those pleasures in check and we have to keep those pleasures aligned. And the greatest pleasure of all is health. The greatest pleasure of all is our vitality. And, you know, the proverb of, you know, a person who is healthy has a thousand wishes, but the person who's unhealthy only has one wish, mm. right? And so if you're hedonistic in behavior as I am, then, um, I mean, I'm in, the, I'm in the wine business as an example. I mean, I love to drink wine, but all these pleasures have to be aligned with our health and have to be aligned with our vitality, which is why we sell these specific type of wines that, as you know, not only taste better, but they're much better for you. I think that's such an amazing way that you framed that. And I just want to kind of highlight that for people because whenever I work with people, I always say, you know, finding your why. And for me, um, health and fasting, how I got into fasting is when I learned about the Nobel Prize for autophagy. And I have a lot of cancer in my family. And I had personally had, uh, three surgeries for tumors that thankfully were not cancerous. But once I learned about that, I, that, that became my passion for, you know, keeping myself healthy and being able to help others. And so I feel like if, when people find their why like that, like what you did with starting your company and, and how you've done all these things over the years, it becomes making those day to day decisions about, you know, limiting the hedonism part a little easier when you, when you strongly well, identify your why. Hedonism gets a, it gets kind of a bad rap. I don't think there's anything, <laughs> wrong. In fact, I celebrate uh, the enjoyment of pleasure. It's just that the pleasures need to be aligned with, with, with a health span, an outcome, you know, of, you know, I'm going to take semi-retirement at 90. I, my current life plan is live to 100. And so, you know, I'm entering my sixth decade now. And so really what happens over the next 10 years will determine the outcome of the next 30, right? I mean, as the last... 20 or 30 has had a tremendous impact on being 60, right? And so, um, so I, but back to your question, a therapeutic ketogenic diet, which was historically used originally, well, it was, it was used actually with even the Romans were using fasting and deprivation, which took people into a ketotic state to, to um, they knew that it was effective in dealing with people with, with uh, seizures and people that they thought were crazy, but turns out they were just having seizures, and when they contained them and didn't feed them, even the Romans knew that fasting had a very substantial impact on seizures. And then in the 1920s... Finally able to share some really exciting news with the Heal, Nourish, Grow family. After years of people telling me I should write a cookbook, I finally did. It's, of course, focused on keto recipes that are low-carb and delicious. But however you choose to eat, you'll want to have these weeknight recipes that are finished in under 30 minutes at your disposal to feed your hungry crew. The cookbook is available mid-November, so if you're listening to this, it's likely already out. Please visit cookbook.healnourishgrow.com for all the details. 
the therapeutic ketogenic diet was used to treat children with epilepsy uh, who were not responding or pre-drugs and then not responding to drugs. Mm -hmm. But again, having a therapeutic diet for anyone, even particularly a child, is very difficult. But it's a very high level of fat, very low carb, and less than 20 grams of carbs a day, right? Which is very low carb. And then, um, and then a moderate protein. And so a modified ketogenic diet, and that, and that will keep your, that will keep your, um, that will keep your beta hydroxybutyrate in a blood tested range of um, 1.5 millimolars to 3.5 millimolars on this kind of diet, right? You stay in pretty high, pretty high ketotic state. There are a couple of problems with it from my perspective. One is the diet is not very interesting over time. Mm -hmm. It's fine in short bouts, but it's not terribly interesting over time. Um, it's socially very restrictive. Um, and then, uh, and then I don't like being in this cognitive state of very high ketone productions for very long. And I'm in it right now because my ketones are raging at the moment. I can feel them. They, you know, they tingle at the top of your head. I can feel them in my brain because, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, I'm day three of a five-day water fast, so my ketones are very high, given that I was already ketotic before I went to the extended fast. And so I don't – this – when I get in this high ketotic state of – you know, I haven't checked my, my – uh, BHB, but I'm going to guess right now it's probably 1.8 or 2.0, something like that, just based on the way I feel. I don't like extending this for long periods of time because it makes me so focused and so myopic, right? The cognitive performance is so high that, you know, you become rather intense <laughs> and you become intense to the people around you and uh, you become hyper-focused. And for me, that's while the performance I appreciate, I'm not sure the people around me appreciate it. <laughs> and um, and it's just, I like to live on kind of a peaceful, gentle sort of role. And being that deep into ketosis is not exactly gentle. You know, it's just more go, go, go. It's just, you just, which can be useful during certain times for certain objectives. So modified ketogenic diet, which is what I'm on today, is moderate fat, a calorie somewhere around 40% of calories from fat, 30 to 40%, more generous um, carbohydrate, so maybe less than 50 grams, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then still moderate, but more generous protein than what would be afforded on a therapeutic diet. And that, that diet keeps me in nutritional ketosis, which nutritional ketosis by most people is defined as 0.5 millimolar of beta-hydroxybutyrate on a blood test, and uh, between 0.5 and 0.9 generally. And most people consider nutritional ketosis 0.5 or higher. It Modified doesn't take me up to the 1.2, 1.5 range. It just does not stay right in that just below one millimolar. And so for me, this is kind of a perfect, peaceful place, and it allows me, along with fasting, it allows me to maintain the lean body mass that I want.
I'm just curious, since you brought up the more um, moderated fat in the modified ketogenic diet, one of the things that I've been reading a lot about lately and uh, just learning more about is the ability for just protein intake itself to help maintain lean muscle mass. And you know, I'm hopefully I'm gonna make it to 61 day two, but right now I just turned 48. And you know, after you turn in your thirties, all you do is lose muscle mass. So I'm just wondering if, since you switched to this um, more modified uh, ketogenic one, you said before you were on the therapeutic, so you're maybe eating more protein now. Have you noticed any effects with body composition or any changes other than not being as in high ketosis level? Uh, for me, not really. I haven't noticed any. You know, there's there's a Dr. Ryan Lowry has done uh, with their institute in Florida. Can't remember the Strength Training Institute. They're also keto. They've done a tremendous amount of published scientific papers on on the loss of lean body mass or the addition of lean body mass based on the ketogenic diet. So uh, there's no evidence to support from them anyway that there's a loss or gain of lean body mass at a certain point, mm -hmm. right? At a certain point, of, even with calorie reduction. Um, and one of the common questions I get because I only eat once a day and then people are like, oh, you're crazy, man. How do you get enough calories? And I was like, actually, I don't think about calories. In fact, if anything, I'd like to eat fewer calories. You know, so um, we, we know for sure that one of the only known methods or scientifically demonstrated methods to extend lifespan is calorie reduction. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a whole set of problems associated with that as well. In fact, last night, the steam room at my house, and I had to get in at about 8 o'clock last night because I was cold. Right. And so which is a common side effect of extended fasting. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that Dr. Roy Wolford, who's now deceased, but was, you know, a very famous advocate and scientist for calorie reduction. And there was this calorie reduction society, which he led, and they were extreme calorie reduction, you know, like eating five to eight hundred calories per day. And one of the common side effects, they were always cold. Right. And so it's but when I think of calories and I'm, I want to consume less because we, we know, as I started to say, that one of the only known uh, methods to extend lifespan in, in, in organisms like mice and or more particularly worms and yeast mm -hmm. is, is calorie reduction. And so my goal was not trying to eat more calories. I've, I don't know, it seems to be working out all right on lean body mass. <laughs> But it's the gun show. Those are permitted. <laughs> Love it. So, <laughs> I'd have all so, my guests do that now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, boom. That's pretty so, good. Yeah, it's, I, I don't have any issue with it. It hasn't affected my ability to add muscle mass. The, um, I think, you know, there's a thing for me, and I, we talk about it because my staff and I talk about these issues all the time. There's a certain lean body mass for me, irrespective of what my muscle mass might be at, but there's a certain lean body mass, particularly I feel around my middle section of my body, that if I reach, if I reach fat mass that exceeds, in my particular case, it's generally around, um, it's around a weight point that I happen to know. Mm -hmm. And if I get above that weight point, I don't have that, I don't have that lean tight feel anymore that I like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can feel it. And which is why, you know, everybody's different. So everybody's different body types. Men and women are different. Women are different from other women because of hormonal balances and what we're all different, which is why, you know, 
which is why I love the proverb to feel is to understand, right? And so once you feel your body, once you're in touch with your body and you know because you're being aware and you're paying attention, you're measuring it and you're quantifying those feelings with, with an outcome, right? And so for me, I know that if I can start to feel if I'm not as lean as I want to be. Mm-hmm. And for people looking at me, they, they can't see any difference, right? right? It's just that I feel that difference, which is the same reason that I do all these other biohacks. Like I have, you know, an infrared sauna and a cold plunge and, and, you know, these, all of these techniques that I employ, many of them have some solid scientific support around them and some don't, but I decide whether or not to continue to employ these behaviors or tools or techniques based on whether I think I'm feeling better. And I give you a great example. I stopped taking supplements probably seven or eight years ago. Um, I don't I eat raw whole foods. I, I used to take like this handful of, you know, f- you know, $500 a month in supplements. Mm-hmm. And I had a really expensive urine, right? And Actually, after I stopped taking all these supplements, I felt better. I didn't feel my body was as stressed, right, kind of processing through these things. And so I haven't, um, you know, other than you know, other than when I'm doing extended fasting, I do take Rob Wolf's um, salts, which have magnesium and pot- potassium in the drinkables. It's a powder. Uh, I take those because when I am doing extended fasting, I do, do, do get depleted of, of potassium and magnesium, right, which can cause cramping. Mm-hmm. And so I do supplement with, with some minerals during extended fasting. But other than that, personally, I felt better. Like what you hear so far? Make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. We'd also love it if you could post a review on iTunes. It helps us so much by allowing others to more easily find us. The Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast wouldn't be possible without listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Now back to the show. And so that's what worked for me. You know, uh, just eating a whole raw diet, whole real diet. Not raw, but a whole real diet. And for me, that gave me the nutrition I felt I needed. And so I just try to follow what makes me feel good. Generally speaking, to that note, I feel better, generally speaking, when I eat a higher plant-based diet, right? Uh, Now, I eat meat, I eat fish, I eat protein, but I feel better if I'm eating a higher intake of plant foods. I don't know if that's your experience, but you know, for me, I I was a vegetarian for seven years. I've I've experimented with um, many diets over the years, as you mentioned that you have as well. Um, was part of the whole low fat thing. I don't think I had a piece of butter for maybe 10 years or something. So um, it's a little ridiculous, but um, yeah, I, I think the point is that really, and here's what I think is beautiful about biohackers and people that are into experimenting with their own body is that we all find kind of a, a point where we feel a little better. For me, I noticed that when I went on a higher fat diet, my brain felt so much better. And you know, I have a background in neuropsychology and, and so I've always been focused on brain function. So it was very interesting to me 
when I, you know, went to a higher fat and then also was in ketosis and the difference that I could really feel in my brain. So, but where it works for me, maybe this high, you know, a little bit higher fat on the keto might not work for everybody. A lot of people are experimenting with, you know, higher protein right now for the reason I said, like, you know, just trying to carnivore, maintain. Like, a ton of people doing carnivore. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know, you just have to try and see what works for you. And I would argue though that, you know, there's a the, the kind of a, I almost think people want to be let off the hook with, they think that, oh, well, I might just need carbs. You know, it's like, okay, you don't actually need donuts or processed food. I no, think there's got to be a, a, a wall not a there. Required nutrient, by the way, but yeah. you know, they're not required to live. And certainly then we get into, you know, the type of carb, all vegetables are carbohydrates. So, right. you know, broccoli is a carbohydrate, but you, and, but you know, you, you'd have to eat a tremendous amount of it in order to have any material carbohydrate intake, particularly when you consider net carbs, which is fiber versus the overall con uh, carb content and broccoli is very high in fiber. So you couldn't eat enough of it to ruin your low carb diet, right? You just wouldn't, wouldn't want to eat enough of it. Yeah, that's definitely my experience. Any kind of whole foods based uh, carbs, n not maybe potatoes that are overly starchy, but any like a Great high thing quantity. High quantity of vegetables, I've never had an issue with that messing with my state of ketosis even. I mean, I can go pretty high on natural food carbs and still remain now, are in it. You, are you active in doing, um, are you doing blood measurement or? I usually do um, blood, yeah. Um, and so I, I mean, have, on a very regular basis, like I don't, I don't test, unless I'm experimenting with something. Yeah. I don't. I do blood testing very often anymore. I used to be, you know, rabid about it and, and just like was all deep down into it. as <laughs> a lot of people hearing three or four years ago, but same. Um, and because I write about it, but, you know, I probably do it more often sure. now than I would. I have otherwise. been wearing, um, not right now, but I've experimented with three rounds of the levels continuous glucose monitor, oh, love it, which yeah. came out as commercially available. I don't know if you are familiar with it, but it's, you know, Dexcom was the kind of the standard in, in continuous glucose monitors, but it was like super expensive. If you didn't have a prescription for it, it'd be like $800. Mm -hmm. And um, the Levels, which is a private company that just rolled out in beta about six months ago, I don't even, know, I'm not sure they're available to the public without invites yet or not. I'm not sure, but they distributed to a bunch of biohackers and maybe they're open for business now. I'm not sure, but it's like $99 and you, you insert, you know, a glu continuous glucose monitor in your arm and then you can track your real time uh, glucose on your phone. Yeah. It's and pretty that, amazing. Uh, I experimented yeah. with that a little bit and I'd love to hear what insights that you got from using that. Well, <laughs> I'm a bit disappointed to tell you that I didn't get any real insights from oh, it because sure. of my <laughs> diet and fasting protocol. I just, my like glucose stays really low right. for, I, I did gain some insights that some things that I were, some things I was concerned, I'll give you a couple examples, French fries, which I happen to like. <laughs> um, it just, it's Who just doesn't? like the script. <laughs> I like them, but I eat them very sparingly. And now, because I'm like really training right now, uh, I'm not eating them at all. But I love fried potatoes. Uh, I just can't. I just don't eat a lot of them. But I, I was. It was interesting to experiment that some of the things I thought I might be eating would give me a glucose response did not. Mm -hmm. And 
and I'm not eating them right now while training, not because I'm concerned about the glucose response. It just it just leads me to sort of a messier diet, right? And right now I'm just like in the zone and, you know, have some goals. You know, when we went into COVID, it was, you know, crazy and so many uncertainties. But once that kind of settled out by, you know, kind of late May or early June, you know, my group, we decided like, hey, we're going to live through this with some intention and we're going to come out on the other side of it you know, better off than we went in mm -hmm. and we're going to maintain, you know, our fitness and if anything, increase our attention to diet and fitness so that we come out on the other side of this. If not, we're going to get that COVID weight that many people have and right. we're going to kind of fall apart and we're going to have to kind of start from this, you know, low place. And I didn't want to do that. Neither did my colleagues here. So, you know, we kind of collectively were supportive of each other. Like, Hey, we need to, like in the beginning, we were all drinking a lot more. In the beginning, we were eating off program. In the beginning, we were just like trying to numb out a bit because the whole thing was just so surreal. Mm -hmm. So we were doing that too. But after, you know, I'd say after about May, late May, you know, kind of like, okay, well, we're going to be in this thing for a while. And now we're starting to have some visibility on it. We need to stay isolated. But at the same time, we got to stay in program, you know, or – and but I'll tell you the first couple of months, I think we were all just kind of eating more and drinking more and like just a bit numbed out. But then, you know, it's like, hey, we want to like use this time to live with intention and to come out on the other side of it better as an organization and better as humans and in better shape and condition. And so um, that's, you know, that was sort of our journey and path with it. But it was a, it was a bit weird. Yeah, I, but that, I love that idea of just living with some intention around this time because we're still not out of it and it's not too late to, if you have been off the rails with the food or the drinking or whatever, it's, you know, it's always a new day to start over. So I love that Well, idea. today is the first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly. Take advantage. So since you brought up your colleagues, maybe it's a good time to shift into talking a little bit about dry farm wines. And so maybe you can give people some background. I always tell people how you do all this wonderful testing on the wines and uh, they're all dry farmed, mainly European, which is, you know, when we first found you guys, my husband and I, we've been to Europe several times and we had always noted that when we were there and drinking wine that we felt way better than when we drink wine here. And finally, over the years, putting two and two together, even before we found Dry Farm Wines, we just quit drinking American wines altogether. We'd only go for French and Italian and Australian for the most part. So um, maybe you could chat with everybody about why <laughs> that's kind of how your company runs as well. You test the wines, but they're mainly European and for a pretty good reason. We don't sell domestic wines. There are no domestic wines that meet our standards of purity. And not... But let's back up for because this is true about European wines and generally speaking. But and generally speaking, they are just across the board. Generally speaking, they're healthier. Uh, but that's not you know that, that that that's not a universally true statement. It, it depends on there are a lot of variables there. There are 56 additives approved in the EU in winemaking. There are 76 approved by the FDA for the use in winemaking in the United States. So not all European wines are better than American wines. Just as a general statement, likely to be a little bit better. But what we do is take that betterment to an extreme. 
And so, but before we get to kind of what we do and why that's different, why it's important if you care about what you're drinking and why it's important that you drink natural wines, whether you get them from us or not. Natural wines is a confusing term to consumers of like, aren't all wines natural? And they're not for the reasons I'm about to tell you. So what's happened in the wine industry in the United States and around the world, but particularly in the United States, because in the United States, we like to scale everything, right? So we want everything to be bigger, bolder, better. Right. And so we're masters of scale. And in this case, we scale greed and we've been the best in the world at scaling greed. So what happened in the wine business is the same thing that's happened in the food supply. So there's been massive corporate consolidation over the last 30 years, fueled by Wall Street money, where that you've got a handful of companies making almost all the wine and they're making it in giant factories. Now, you don't know that because these multi-billion dollar marketing conglomerates hide behind tens of thousands of labels and brands to confuse consumers. So the facts are, and everything I'm going to tell you about the wine industry and what's wrong with it and how to avoid it is all available on a Google search. Mm -hmm. right? There's nothing here that's proprietary or my opinion. It's, it's stated fact, and you can just do your own research if you're so inclined. 52% of all United States wines are made by just three companies. And the top 30 companies make over 70% of U.S. wines. So when you go in the grocery store into a bottle shop and you see hundreds or thousands of bottles down the aisle of all these wines, most of them are made by just a handful of companies. Mm -hmm. Now, wine is sold in three ways. Story, label, or scarcity, right? Uh, ratings, scarcity and ratings, which doesn't apply to most wines that most people are drinking. Most people are drinking wines between, you know, 10 and $30, right? And so scarcity and ratings gets in wines that are 50, 100, $250 a bottle, this kind of craziness, which is completely unnecessary to drink great wine. If you've been around my content for a while, you know that one of my favorite things is making and eating gourmet food and pairing it with wine. You might think you can't enjoy wine, though, while trying to lose weight or stay in ketosis. And if you're drinking traditional wine, you might be right. So many wines are mass-produced and full of sugar and other garbage additives that can wreak havoc on your health goals and just make you feel bad. Fortunately, I discovered Dry Farm Wines. I've been drinking their wine for years now, and I love this company. They individually test small batch wines produced by vintners that are committed to the practice of dry farm production. Some of my favorites have been the Blancfranc variety from Austria and all of the wines from the Loire Valley in France. Dry farm wines are free from excess sulfites and mold that can cause adverse reactions and hangovers. With no added sugar, each wine is tested to be under one gram of sugar in the entire bottle. Yep, you just heard that right. There's less than one carb in the whole bottle of wine. They're also slightly lower alcohol, which means you can enjoy a delicious wine pairing at dinner any given night and not end up with a hangover. You can receive an extra bottle for just a penny with your first order by visiting dryfarmwines.com slash heal nourish grow. I'd love to hear what your favorite wine is after you try it and be sure to tag me on social with pictures of your wine and delicious dinners. Again, that bottle of wine for a penny is at dryfarmwines.com slash heal nourish grow. Primarily wines are sold through label and story. So you go in and you start looking for labels that you make you feel good or that you like, or maybe there's a farmhouse in there. You think there's wines come from this little farmhouse. That's what you they want you to think. 
In fact, most of these wines are made in giant wine factories in Central California, and these wine factories are multiple football fields big. All right, they're just enormous, as far as you can see, tank farms. And, uh, and then most of them are located in a very concise section of the Central Valley in California. So that's, you know, so this greed, this Wall Street fueled greed is what is causing these products to be made with up to 76 additives. Now, why doesn't your customer or the public know about these 76 additives? Because the wine industry spends millions of dollars in lobby money in Washington, D.C. to keep contents labeling off of wine bottles. In addition, nutritional information as well, but that's not the worst of it. So there's no nutritional information on a wine bottle, so you don't know how many carbs are in it, you don't know how much sugar's in it, right? Those are the two things you'd be looking for. You know how much alcohol, but you really don't know how much alcohol's in it if you're concerned about alcohol as we are. We don't sell any wines over 12.5%. Average American wines now are about 15%. Most of the wines I'm drinking today are between 6 and 9%. And because it surprises people, this is a real surprise to people when they hear the wine guy, who they believe is here to sell wine, say the following. Alcohol is a very dangerous neurotoxin, and it ruins the lives of millions of people a year. And some people shouldn't drink at all, right? And so we try to think about alcohol as a way to tap into, you know, a higher state of consciousness around the dinner table or around opening our heart with friends, we don't think of wine as checking out. We don't think of using alcohol to check out. We think of using alcohol to tap in. And if we're going to tap into that space, we've got to be very conscious of the amount of alcohol we consume. Right? Alcohol is a slippery drug. It's what I call a domino drug, meaning that the more you drink, the more likely you are to drink more in a domino effect, right? Mm -hmm. So beginning with lower alcohol in the first place in the bottle is the best way to sort of maintain and control without having fewer glasses, you have lower alcohol, mm -hmm. right? And so it's a better way to control that domino effect. And so we're, we're very, in fact, we're about to launch in July we're about to launch a wine. Uh, it's a product we've made from wine, but it's infused with um, holistic herbs and flowers. Mm -hmm. And the alcohol is actually 6%. Ooh, wow. And awesome. it's amazing and delicious. And you can drink all night long, right? <laughs> and you're getting all this wonderful uh, effects from the polyphenols and compounds in wine and the magic and spirit of these herbs and flowers all together in one botanical elixir, right? It's a, it doesn't taste like wine per se, but its foundation is the essence of pure natural wine. But my point of saying that is that, that alcohol in of itself is, is quite wonderful and has been shown to be helpful in moderate doses. The problem is most people who drink regularly don't necessarily drink moderately. Okay, and so, um, and so we think a lot about that, and we think a lot about the dangers of alcohol and how to use it in a healthy way, how to use it in a way that is going to enhance not only our pleasures but enhance our 
consciousness and our spiritual communication with one another. I only drink at night. We don't. None of us drink in the daytime. I don't recommend that people drink during the daytime. And so it's like we think of wine and the spirit of wine around the dinner table in a way to connect and, and create more love, right? And so wine is a way that encourages love. And any tool that you can find that opens your heart to vulnerability and makes you more emotionally accessible as wine does, mm -hmm. then that encourages more love in the world and more love in the world can only be a good thing, right? So that's, so, but this, you know, we're coming up on time, so you, we could go down the wormhole of what, the, all the things, irrigation, genetically modified commercial yeast that you use in fermentation, all these things that are happening with commercial wines that you buy in the store that natural wines, which are always organically or biodynamically farmed, in our case, there's no irrigation, so they're dry farm, which with our farms alone saves 1.6 billion gallons of water a year. It's amazing. Right. And so they're better for the planet, they're better for the vine, and then they're fermented always with wild native yeast, not genetically modified commercially lab-grown yeast. And then they have no additives in them. And in our case, they're also lower alcohol. And they're all lab tested for these purities. Right? And so that's the reason that when you drink these wines, you feel better and you feel different. A material difference from drinking a commercial wine. A material difference. Right? You can't go back to drinking commercial wines. That's definitely been my experience <laughs> with right. dry sure. market wines. Um, Mine too, and everybody else's. Yeah. And so that's, you know, so, I, you know, you go to our website, or you, you're, we have a link for your for your customers to get a special penny bottle from us, uh, which I'm sure you'll have on the show notes. Mm -hmm. But you know, or if you don't if you don't buy wine from us, then do see if you can find a way to find natural wines. Natural wines are very, very, very tiny part of the market. We're the largest natural wine buyer and seller in the world, and it represents less than one tenth. One tenth of one percent of all wines in the world, so it's a tiny, tiny category, and you won't find natural wines outside of major markets. You know, I say major markets: New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Miami. Mm -hmm. uh, more or less outside of these markets, it's very difficult to find natural wine at all. Two ways to find it: is you can do a Google search for it, or there's a smartphone app called Raisin. That is a map-based app for natural wines, bars, and retailers. But the thing is, they're just scant and few across the United States. Um, drinking natural wine, however, doesn't mean that you get the dry farm wine certification, lower alcohol, sugar-free. Our wines are lab-tested for sugar. Not all natural wines are sugar-free. And so, you know, I don't eat sugar. I don't want to drink it either. And uh, speaking of addictive drugs, I mean, I think sugar is the most widely abused, most addictive drug on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I know you like to live a near sugar-free lifestyle, and so as do we. So we certainly don't want to drink it, and it's common to find sugar in wines. So um, that's one of the reasons we do lab testing is to find out if there's any sugar in it. We also do lab testing to make sure it's lower in alcohol because – Another collusion between the U.S. government and the wine industry is the alcohol stated on a wine bottle by law is not required to be accurate. And so if it says 14% on the label, it could be 15.5% and still be legal. Mm -hmm. 
So because we care a lot about alcohol, that's the reason those things are important to us. But um, yeah, so there's, there's a lot to say about wine. Fortunately, we took most of our time talking about nutrition and fasting, which is as near to my heart as is uh, great wine, maybe even closer to. So I was glad we got to spend a lot of time on that. Yeah, no, and I've, like I said, when I've heard interviews with you in the past, I always kind of wished that they, that you talked a little bit more about that because there are so many great interviews that you've done and resources on the Dry Farms website where people can see you talk about some of these things that we hit on in more depth. But I really wanted to be able to share with people, you know, when you go down these rabbit holes of health and a lower carb lifestyle, it's, you know, a lot of people look at it just for weight loss, but there's so many more benefits to it and i love that you hit on some of the you know the cognitive benefits and the um just you know obviously it has gotten you to be a very fit 60 year old following all these practices so if people can see that and see that it's sustainable because that's one thing that drives me crazy do you see these media comments where they'll talk about keto and they're like it's not sustainable i'm thinking i know so many people who have been doing this now like five seven ten fifteen i know a guy has been keto shank for 20 years yeah and forward at uh uh, IHMC in Florida, who became ketogenic for um, uh, for treating some um, seizures he was having during uh, extreme fitness, and so he kind of stumbled onto and accidentally discovered a ketogenic diet. He's been keto for 20 years, and he's also in his 60s, and he looks great yeah. and uh, you know just amazing. But uh, same thing recently in the last few years, uh, Mark Sisson, who's a good friend, has also you know, experimented deeply with, and as has Rob Wolf as well with keto. Most of them just converts in the last few years. They were always low carb paleo before, but now they've all sort of discovered the, the amazing outcome from both fasting and the keto diet. And all of them are now publishing widely on both topics. Uh, Mark and is Mark's so, Daily Apple, is that right? Yeah, Mark's Daily Apple. Yeah. And then Rob Wolf is uh, robwolf.com, uh, who was you know, wrote the original paleo kind of manifesto. Mark Sisson is sort of the godfather of paleo, but both of them are, both of them have now really largely transitioned to um, the ketogenic diet as well as fasting. I mean, I think every fasting has been kind of the latest evolution for Dave Asprey at Bulletproof just wrote a book about fasting. I mean, fasting has become the new black. Right. Yeah, so. I'm, I'm glad I can finally. I used to avoid talking about it because, as a woman, and particularly in a particularly a smaller size woman, uh, you would talk about fasting, and people automatically think you have an eating disorder or something. Right. <laughs> and so it's um, and and of course that is a danger. You know, I do always caution people that I work with if they have any history with that. Obviously, it's something that you need to be very careful with. But again, if you make it in align with your goals and your health and your ultimate purpose, I think that people can use that tool and could perhaps even help some people that have had problems with that in the past if used properly. Yeah, I think I think you 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 mentioned the key word that has been the word that has been the focus of my recent meditations and my recent which we didn't even talk about meditation but which is like the cornerstone of my life but uh, I've been my recent meditations and and journaling and 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 thoughts have been alignment. Right? And so when we have alignment, then we have balance. And that's when I have alignment on pleasurable hedonistic interests, they have to be aligned with moderation. 
right? You don't get to have it both ways, you know, unfortunately. I couldn't I'll, agree more. Uh, yeah. I, I worry about the slippery slope people have talking about sort of intuitive eating. And I'm like, you know, your body, you might think your body is intuiting that you need a donut, but I just, no, I, I, I don't really, do I don't really buy it. <laughs> I think that's your brain yeah. taking over. Personally. It's like going to a coma if I ate a donut. I had to lay down and take a nap. <laughs> right. I couldn't even tell you the last donut I ate. I was in, probably before you were born. <laughs> and, Thanks for um, having me today. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, no, I love this conversation. I'm happy that we got to touch on some of your other history outside of Dry Farms. But as you guys already know, I love Dry Farms. Been drinking it for years. Always makes me feel good. Always around the dinner table, as you mentioned, just kind of there is something just very special about having a meal with wine. And I'm happy to be able to do it with a much healthier version now. Awesome. <laughs> so thanks for that. Right, well, thanks for having me today. Yeah. This has been the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast. Again, I'm Cheryl McColgan, founder of Heal, Nourish, Grow. You can find show notes for this episode at healnourishgrowpodcast.com. If you have feedback on today's episode or questions about the content, please email us at podcast at healnourishgrow.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to sign up for our email list at healnourishgrow.com and subscribe to the show with your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode. Join us next time for more information that helps you live your best and healthiest life. Thanks for listening. Content on the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast does not constitute medical advice. Content contained in the Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast is not intended as medical diagnosis or treatment. Neither the company nor its owner, Heal, Nourish, Grow, LLC, nor any of the company's employees, agents, or guest speakers provide medical advice. The content provided on Heal, Nourish, Grow podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your medical provider with any questions about what health practices are right for you.